good day, you juicy bifters. I hope you're having a, a lovely, lovely time. How are you getting on? Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. What's the crack? Um, Before I continue, I, I made a, an error on last week's podcast. I announced a live podcast in Waterford on the 23rd of March. It's this week. Uh, I said that my guests were going to be the lads from Waterford Whisper News. Unfortunately, those lads, I had agreed that Waterford Whispers News were going to be the guests. But they'd actually cancelled. And they had, the people who they told anyway that they were going to cancel had never told me. So, when I announced it last week at the podcast, or on last week's podcast when I announced that Waterford Whispers were going to be my guest, Colm from Waterford Whispers text me freaking out going we cancelled it months ago did anyone not tell you so it's like no so unfortunately the Waterford Whispers news lads are not going to be on the fucking the Waterford podcast on the 23rd of March I'm going to find a new guest I will be interviewing the lads at some pit, some stage though because they're friends of mine and if you don't know what Waterford Whispers is if you're an international listener Waterford Whispers is like a satirical, an Irish satirical website that have been going for about 10 years and they're just comedic genius, consistent comedic genius and not only are they my pals but also I just have kind of unending love and respect for Waterford Whispers because it's completely and utterly independent. Totally independent. There's no money behind it, just straight up very successful because the comedy and the content is good. But alas, they will not be my guests in Waterford on the 23rd. I'll find somebody else. Um, other live dates. What have we got? Castle Blaney in Monaghan on the 30th of March. April the fucking 5th, I'm in Nace. 6th and 7th, I'm in Vicar Street. 12th, I'm in Whitlaw Hall, Belfast. And then 27th, which I'm really fucking looking forward to. I'm coming back to my beloved Cork. I fucking love Cork so much. I've been gigging in Cork for years. It's just... I don't know. It's it's like... Why do I love Cork so much? It's like... It's it's Limerick's older brother. It's, it's like... It's like what Limerick kind of could be. Now, I don't mean that in any disrespect to Limerick. It's just the people of Cork are... Culturally quite similar to Limerick people. They sound like Limerick people. But... As a city, it just... Either they have more investment or whatever, but... It's it's just a... Cork is like Limerick's aspiration. It's it's a really functioning city where there's a good nightlife and all of this stuff. Whereas Limerick has always been kind of... Kind of poor and hard done by and... <clears throat> our city centre, there's not much going on, you know. Limerick, Limerick's... Uh, the best thing about Limerick is always the people. The people of Limerick are incredibly fucking friendly funny funny people and the humour of Limerick is fantastic but despite what people tell you unfortunately you know um, people say oh you come to Limerick you're going to get your head kicked in or you'll be shot or you'll be stabbed that's all bullshit you know Lim- Limerick had issues with, with uh, gang violence 10 years ago it was a small amount of people but the press misrepresented it massively you know, if you're listening to this from the north side of Dublin, you know exactly what I'm talking about because the media are misrepresenting the north side of Dublin now. 
so as a result of that, the reputation of Limerick is very unfairly negative. Um, and anyone who's come here will tell you that, that it's an unfair representation. But we could do with a bit more either investment or just more crack. Uh, but the people of Limerick are lovely. Cork people are similar. But there's just more cash in the city, I think. And there's aspirational qualities. Cork looks like an achievable goal if you're from Limerick. So I'm going to be in Cork doing a live podcast in the Opera House, which is my first time doing the Opera House solo as a live podcast. So I can't fucking wait for that. Um, There's a few tickets left. I think it's about 60% sold. So there are tickets left for the live podcast in Cork. You beautiful, gorgeous singing bastards. So this week's podcast is quite long. Um, because it's this is a two-part podcast as such, you know, so you mightn't even listen to it in one sitting. Um, I'm going to have some guests on. I'm going to have Ellie Kisiambe and Michelle Darmody. But before that, I've got a couple of hot takes. I'm going to have hot takes on St. Patrick's Day, its history, and I have a, a very impassioned hot take about the music of Enya. So if you're if you're here for my guests... Uh, then you can fast forward like I think 40 minutes or something and just go straight and listen to that if you don't want to hear me ramble on with hot takes but we're going to be talking about direct provision which is an issue that there's a lot of ignorance around and it isn't spoken about enough in wider circles I don't see enough about it in the media so bear with me a few minutes before we get on to that But before we progress, I've got two miniature hot takes that I kind of want to just get off my chest this week, you know. They're smaller hot takes, so they don't merit individual podcasts. Also, I forgot to say this last week, the Blind Boy podcast is now available on Spotify. So most of you listen to this on either iTunes or Acast. That's grand, you can continue if that's what works for you. But if Spotify is your preferred way of listening to podcasts, the Blind Boy podcast is on Spotify. If you do choose to have Spotify as the one you listen to, please follow the podcast as well. That makes a huge difference. Yort. So my first hot take is around St. Patrick's Day. It was St. Patrick's Day on Sunday. And St. Patrick's Day is weird. If you live in Ireland, like if, if Ireland is your home, then St. Patrick's Day is weird and strange because it's it's a really mad represent it's it's an unrealistic representation of Irishness as you live it in Ireland, you know. Like these fucking green hats and green t shirts and green beards or green beers, Guinness, green Guinness, dying the river green. Like to people who live in Ireland, this is mad. It's has nothing to do with the actual lived experience of living in fucking Ireland but yes the world over on the 17th of March we kind of have to watch the, the rest of the world engage in this really hilarious and strange theatrical pantomime of what they think Irishness is leprechauns green hats parades Drinking to excess. We do a bit of that in fairness. But. Just a pantomime. You know. 
and it's grand. So on Patrick's Day, I, I tweeted, uh, now foolish me, I, I, you know, I've made a promise to myself, I will not tweet hot takes anymore. Hot takes are for the fucking podcast, because when you tweet something, Twitter's weird, you know, like all online is, is weird, but Twitter is, Twitter's a battlefield. It's a very hostile environment, so, and there, there's no room, to be honest, anymore for humor or satire on Twitter, especially when it's words. If it's an image, if it's a video, yes, that can be humorous, but when you tweet words on Twitter, we read tweets with our own emotion. We, we project our own tone onto it, so when you tweet something that's tongue-in-cheek or funny or amusing people will very quickly take it as serious and can react angrily you know so people a few people reacted angrily to this uh, the other thing too is if you how tweets are presented to us you know your timeline is a mixture of all different tweets so you can have serious news you can have very inflammatory stuff so your tweet is read in in a scroll of all this stuff so it's very difficult for us to switch emotions rapidly do you know if i read a, a headline on the guardian about fascism and that makes me angry and then the next tweet underneath is actually someone making a joke it's hard for me to then immediately switch emotion and laugh so anything tweeted is open for gross uh misinterpretation and I've accepted responsibility for that. You know, I've said to myself, this is how Twitter is. If you don't like being criticised on Twitter, stop tweeting hot takes. So I try not to. I try and keep my content as wholesome and positive as possible. But every so often I'll tweet out a hot take and then regret it because I've incredibly angry people in my mentions. And sometimes you can make it worse if you try and defend yourself. If you try and say to the person, do you know what, I, I, I meant that as a joke you can actually make it worse for yourself. So the best thing on Twitter is to learn the art of shutting the fuck up. 90% of the time I'm good at it. Every so often I'll, a tweet will creep out and then I'll see the responses and I'll go, I shouldn't have tweeted that now. I, I'd i have an easier day, a much less stressful day if I shut the fuck up and save those hot takes for the podcast. So what I tweeted was, on Paddy's Day, I said, St. Patrick's Day, as we celebrate it today, is an American tradition created from the bizarre and addled memories of drunk people traumatised by the famine, who had no photographs to look at. Their memories were then repeated as annual ritual until it no longer resembled Ireland. Now I tweeted that tongue-in-cheek. That's a highly reductive and silly interpretation of Paddy's Day. It's pure hot take in that it's it's kind of half-true. It's one version of the story. It's like Patrick's Day is, like, how we experience St. Patrick's Day now is full on, like, it's it's an American holiday, it is, like, St. Patrick's Day has been in Ireland for years, obviously, it's it's the celebration of St. Patrick, who apparently brought Christianity to Ireland, but it would have been a religious holiday, and I now I said how, it, how the actual proper way to celebrate St. Patrick's Day was probably to climb into a wooden box with a priest tell him that you've been masturbating recently and spend the rest of the day meditating on the emotion of shame but, and now by which I mean it's you know a Catholic religious fucking holiday 
So Paddy's Day would have been that. Uh, a Catholic religious holiday where... I think at the moment we're in the middle of Lent where you abstain from things. So I think in the context of Lent, Patrick's Day, you would have been allowed to either eat meat or to drink alcohol. Even before the Irish-American celebration of St. Patrick's Day. But the Patrick's Day that we kind of see today, Green Guinness, parades, these have their roots in America. They're Irish-American celebrations. Um, they go, it, Patrick's Day goes back to, geez, I think the 1730s in places like America and, or sorry, New York and Chicago. And how it must initially be interpreted is in the 17 fucking 30s up until the 1860s, the Irish were like very much discriminated against, like hugely discriminated against in the way that we'll say Syrian refugees are spoken about today. That's how the Irish were treated in America, uh, 1700s, 1800s. Patrick's Day came out of that as a way to, you know, for an outcast people to join together, to be fraternal, to celebrate, to have a sense of pride. Also, you know, a genuine show of force. It's like, there's a lot of us here. Are you sure you want to fuck with us? There's a bit of that too. But also a kind of a green, rosy, tinted memory of the past, a kind of a faux nationalism. But throughout the years, this has become people living in Ireland to the Irish people today when we look at Patrick's Day parades in America it's kind of funny to us it's like we, we don't even know what that is that's I guess that's that's a version of Irishness that's been passed down and perverted and, and remixed throughout the years but to us it's like that's not how we live our lives we, we don't know what corned beef and cabbage is it doesn't exist here we don't want our Guinness to be green you, quite a lot of people drink craft beer now um, we don't dye things green. We don't give that much of a fuck about green, to be honest. Shamrocks don't mean much to us over here. Shamrocks, again, are an Irish-American thing. Um, I know there's the old legend of Patrick Sh- used the shamrock to represent the Stations of the Cross, but the f- the iconic fetishization of the shamrock is an Irish-American thing that was sold back to us. So the in Ireland... Our interaction with St. Patrick's Day is is a touristy thing. Ireland started to adopt St. Patrick's Day in the early 20th century because by the early 20th century, the Irish in America had stopped being oppressed and had become, they were starting to become quite powerful, especially within like the police force, uh, the Democratic Party. So Ireland in the early 20th century, especially as well when Ireland got independence from Britain, wanted Americans to come back there's a lot of pandering done to Irish Americans come over here with your fucking money and spend it to fuck because we're poor that type of attitude and like we don't care if you think that leprechauns are real just spend some money that's the relationship it's strange um so when I put out the tweet I'm like you know I was I was being I was hot taken I was being silly it's it's unfair to say that it's you know, that, that Patrick's Day is just this ridiculous drunken memory of Irishness. There's much more than that. It's political, do you know? And how the Irish Americans express and experience Patrick's Day is completely valid, you know? 
if that's their way of getting fraternity, having a sense of identity, brilliant. I'm very cautious of... Um, I try really hard not to be the person who's telling people to stop having fun in a different way to how I have fun. That's always the worst take, do you know? And I always try and police myself around it. Every so often I'll get caught, but I'm very cautious of... Like, not shitting on someone because they like a certain type of music. Or, like, I don't like sports at all. I don't get sports. But I, I try not to shit on other people for enjoying sports. Other people are having fun in a way that's different to how I have fun. That's fucking fine. As long as no one's getting hurt, that's absolutely grand. Um, One critique I have of, we'll say, Irish-American culture doesn't embrace the oppression of black people it it you, you you can't speak about irish american culture without speaking about how the irish became the powerful political force that they are today like our irish americans are very powerful just look at the people in the white house irish america has a very powerful lobby this the irish gained their power by acts of utter racism and brutality towards black people and that is an undeniable historical fact the turning point and just one example of it the New York City draft riots of 1860 I believe could be 1860 Uh, what this was is the American Civil War was happening there was massive amounts of Irish immigrants coming into New York huge amounts so what happened is the American government brought in a draft so that newly very very poor working class Irish people living in New York in the Five Points district around Manhattan were conscripted and being sent to fight the Confederates in the South essentially to the simplistic version of why the American Civil War was fought was to end slavery right so the dirt poor working class Irish Americans in the slums of New York were like, fuck this, I'm after leaving the famine in Ireland to come over here and have a new life, and as soon as I get here, you want me to go and fucking give my life? For what? So the Irish rioted, had a huge fucking riot in New York City. But unfortunately, instead of, they did take their anger out on the buildings and took their anger out on on the established power in New York, but they also hung a couple of hundred black people for simply being black massive massive racial violence lynching and hunting down black people because the Irish Americans were like you're the reason this civil war is happening they want to send me to Mississippi to die on a battlefield to free you so I'm going to hang you that is a part of Irish American history that doesn't get spoken about it doesn't get represented just look at the film The Gangs of New York you know, a very romanticised version of how the Irish started as a gang culture and then became powerful, completely erases the racism and violence that the Irish committed against black people in America. Absolutely erases it. And it's erased from a lot of narratives about Irish America. That needs to be acknowledged and needs to be stitched into the narrative as a, a recognisable pain. Do you know what I mean? You, you can't just... You can't just go, oh, poor old Paddy. 
my ancestors were dirt poor and they come over here on, on a coffin ship. It's like, yeah, and then you went to America and power was grabbed through acts of brutality, which not only the 1840s, but could be argued continued long on by the Irish assimilating their power into the police forces and the fire brigade and the acts of brutality that were committed against uh, black people through the American police. These are all part of the conversation of the Irish diaspora. So you, ha- you can't just leave out the bits that are inconvenient or embarrassing or disgusting. The, that racism is embarrassing and disgusting. But you have to take ownership of it. You have to go, yeah, that's part of the narrative too. Do you know what I mean? Also, Irish Americans to this day saying that Irish people were slaves too and saying Irish people were slaves too as a way to dismiss the voices of of black people today. Irish people were never fucking slaves. There is a small chance that you were descended from Irish indentured servants in the Caribbean in the 16-1700s. Yes, there were uh, Irish people brought against their will to be indentured servants, but they were not slaves. They were not chattel slave. They were not generational property. They were afforded basic humanity, no matter how shittily they were treated. The Irish were never slaves. Please don't continue that myth. Um, if you're an Irish American, even out of ignorance, don't do that, please. It's it's disrespectful to your own ancestors. But where's my hot take? Here's a hot take I was thinking of. So Patrick's Day is celebrated the world over, right? It's like nearly every fucking country in the world because there's so many Irish people have been dispersed all around the world. And here's one hot take that I think is valid and could be made hugely, hugely relevant today. The thing with Paddy's Day is that it really only serves Irish interests. You know, it's about Irish identity. It keeps the name Ireland on people's tongues. You could be argued that the the reason... Like, Ireland's fucking tiny. Really tiny country. And people know about it because of things like Paddy's Day. It's like, here's the day once a year where all the green people come out and get pissed. Do you know? And it's representation of some description. Whether it's negative or positive, it is representation. Part of the reason that the colour green is fetishized so much within Patrick's Day culture. It's it's not just because of the association with the colour green and Irish nationalism. You have to think of a person from, we'll say, West Cork or Kerry or Galway in the 1820s suddenly leaving and finding their way to New York, okay? New York in the 1820s, 1830s, especially where the Irish lived in the Five Points district of, of Manhattan, were terrible horrible industrial slums disgusting places where there there wasn't even footpaths in the five points you sludged around on black mud that was full of shit and the air was acrid with smoke from factories and it was full-blown horrible exploitative industrialism where people didn't have workers rights and you had a disgusting slum-like life where your body was slowly eroded by pollutants and industry. And Irish people started to fetishise the memory of trees and meadows and green grass. It's like Paddy's Day, part of its iconography and its meaning comes from 
I'm now living in a polluted place where there's nothing but concrete and smoke and the beautiful green fields and the clear air and and the fucking trees are, are a memory of my past so I'm going to latch onto that I think Paddy's Day in order to be a genuine force for good and change because the infrastructure already ex- exists here we have this thing that's celebrated all over the world and is green why doesn't Paddy's Day start to become more and more about saving the environment why doesn't Paddy's Day take on like it can still be fucking Irish it can still be the Irish diaspora but instead of us celebrating our heritage we're celebrating the future and the future is we need to do something about industry we need to do something about global warming here is this celebration that's rooted in the horrors of an industrial slum and trying to remember what trees were like take that and go in 50 fucking years this could be the world in 50 years we could be trying to remember what grass looked like because of desertification this isn't sensationalism this is what science is telling us so why doesn't Paddy's Day do that the world over this massive 17th of fucking April the greenness that we're celebrating is what can we do for the future how can we stop the fucking this happening now my fear around that is the Irish American lobby is very powerful and stuck into industry and politics and in order to have a decent conversation about the environment, as we've established before, 70% of the global warming issues are happening, be- not because of you and me not recycling. 70% is because of industry. 100 companies. 100 very powerful companies are causing the worst of the global warming, which is both terrifying and relieving. It's terrifying because it's like, how do we let it get to that? But there's a sense of relief because... To stop it looks somewhat achievable. To stop 100 companies is a clear goal. To make them account for what they're doing to the environment. So there's my hot take. Why doesn't Paddy's Day rebrand itself? You know, take note of its past rooted essentially in a form of environmentalism. And then take that going forward and go, this is the new thing. 17th of March. The world world wears fucking green. And politicians are held to account and actual change has to fucking happen now. I don't think that's too nuts. I don't think that's too mad. And there's also, like I mentioned there, if, you know, an inextricable part of the Irish-American experience is horrible acts of brutality against black people in America, which is something that is shameful and embarrassing, embrace it. And go looking forward, you know, if we have this darkness in our narrative and this darkness in our past, how about we try and change that towards something positive and look at saving the fucking world and look at not utterly exploiting the fucking natural resources of Africa, which is happening right now and contributing too to the massive uh, global warming that we're experiencing and the disaster that's around the corner. So this is like a two-part podcast this week in that the first half I'm going to have my two little hot takes and then the second half I'm going to go to an interview that I wanted to put out. My second hot take 
which is not big enough for me to do a whole episode on, but something that I've been thinking about. Before I continue, as you know, I care deeply about music. I speak about music a lot on this podcast. I try my best to make music incredibly accessible um, for people who maybe have a passing interest in it. The next 15 minutes, I'm going to get borderline very, very nerdy with music to the point that it, it might even be selfish. So if you're not mad about my music podcasts, I'd, I'd go forward 15 minutes because... I'm going to be going a bit deep into how music is critically received and how we read music in our culture and how we uh, as- ascribe meaning to music. Um, so it, it, c- it could be like me having to listen to someone talk about soccer. You know, not not everyone uh, analyses and cares about music the way someone like myself would. Some people just have it on in the background. And that's fine. You know, that's fine. In relation to couple of weeks ago you know when I was speaking about the impact of the prodigy and I was talking about you know the prodigy are massive they're fucking huge you know international band especially for their live music but I, I don't feel they get they have massive commercial success and they're considered legends but there's an extra level of respect that they're not afforded we'll say for their songwriting their creativity their uh, production, their innovation I just don't think the Prodigy get that level of respect around that that they deserve another artist who I feel, and I only noticed this the other night, is in the same kind of category, is Enya, right, now Enya is like she's massive like, she's the second uh, biggest Irish selling artist next to you too. Enya's global. She's fucking huge, right? Ubiquitous. Like, in Ireland, of course, Enya's popular, but she's far more popular outside of Ireland. Um, She's kind of reminds me a little bit of, as well of, her success is quite similar to Mr. Bean's. Now, I know that sounds utterly insane, but let me explain. Like, Mr. Bean... Mr. Bean gets written off as not being very good. It's not. Mr. Bean is is very well-written, well-crafted slapstick comedy. And clever. And it draws upon the traditions of clowning and all of this type of stuff. So I've utmost respect for Mr. Bean. But Mr. Bean also doesn't use any, any words. So because it doesn't use words, massively popular around the globe. Enya, similarly, um... A lot of the time she doesn't even sing in English. So she's huge in like China, uh, parts of Eastern Europe, South America. Language barrier isn't a thing with Enya. So there's no dispute that Enya is massive and hugely globally popular. But however, when you search again for people, like I'm talking music producers, journalists, making the serious, serious case for Enya as, as an innovator that's quite lacking for the, for the amount of sales she's had for the size of Enya the actual critical serious respect for her work is kind of non-existent for someone with that many sales it doesn't exist and I remember like I was only a child now but I do remember Enya being in the charts 
like she was really treated as, as cringe territory. Like really considered, her music was considered unbelievably embarrassing. Like you wouldn't dream listening to Enya. And it was seen as like, like this embarrassing thing that Ireland exported and dumb foreign people have been tricked. That was kind of the Enya narrative. And it's completely and utterly unfair. It's absolutely unfair. Um, like, okay, what, one of the most obvious reasons that I can think of is, is misogyny. Um, the space within music criticism that allows for women artists to be considered genius and innovators. Like, music in general is quite exclusionary of women, but in, in the territory of genius and innovator... Women are very much written out. Written out, like I mean, Delia Derbyshire. Who's Delia Derbyshire? You ask. Like Delia Derbyshire is is she was making music in the fifties and sixties, a huge innovator of electronic music. Like fucking ridiculous. The shit get that Aphex Twin gets credit for in the nineties. Delia Derbyshire was doing that in the early sixties, and it wasn't even viewed as music, you know. But I'll be doing a podcast on Delia at some point. And not taken away from Aphex Twin. Aphex Twin is a pioneer of electronic music. But like I said before, music is a conversation. And Delia Derbyshire kind of started a lot of his sentences. But I don't think she's spoken about enough. So the other thing that I think why Enya doesn't get the, the proper critical respect and respect as an innovator is... She was lumped into a genre called New Age. And New Age, it's it's not far off. As a genre, it's kind of like labelling something as novelty. You know, I spoke a few weeks ago about how I, I hate the term novelty, novelty music. It devalues the artistry of music to call something novelty. New Age is similar. Because when you call music New Age, it's music... Music in that genre is put forward as something that you don't listen to for pleasure. You listen to it as a form of therapy. That it's it's not aesthetic, it's functional. You know, it's just someone farting away on a synthesizer to make something that makes you feel relaxed. Do you know? So the term New Age, it's, it's an unfair, it strips something of its artistic and innovative value. Because because a lot of New Age music, in fairness, it is actually just created from a functional point of view. It is actually just recordings of whales with generic synthesizers over them. A lot of New Age music is that, and the people who are making it aren't specifically looking for any credit. It's elevator music, okay? But Enya was consistently put in this category, as well when she was being declared for awards, she was put in the New Age category. And that that immediately strips value from it. That it strips that critical value unfairly. Um, her music would have been, you know, even South Park did an episode where they had Enya's music as the example of what it was like, what it felt like to be old, you know. And we associated her music with, oh, that's what old people listen to when they can't have any loud noises anymore, do you know. All incredibly unfair. Um, <clears throat> another close example as well. Vangelis. Vangelis is somebody who would 
be considered new age but managed to cross over Vangelis did the soundtrack to Blade Runner and some other films but Vangelis is is rightly seen as an innovator and a genius and a pioneer of, of electronic and synthesized music he you know brought real uh, orchestral symphonic energy and moods but he did this with synthesizers in the late 70s and early 80s so deserving of the not only huge sales but actual critical respect from both music journalists and people who make music Enya does not get that I, why not she deserves it like she came from you know an Irish traditional music background with Clannad in the 70s and then said fuck that and ended up on, on this route that no one else had done like we speak about someone like uh, Tom Waits Tom Waits would have done something kind of similar but even when you put it against Enya there's no comparison like Tom Waits started with a a jazz tradition and then in 1980 uh, with swordfish trombones fucked off in another direction and did this very creative new thing similarly Frank Zappa I, I think like critically Enya does need to be placed in a Tom Waits and Frank Zappa territory um Horslips are another example. Horslips are a 1970s Irish uh, heavy rock band who st- who took Irish traditional music and mixed it in with heavy rock and in fairness to them that was original and that was pioneering. They wouldn't have a fraction of Enya's record sales but they would have a lot more artistic... They would be considered to have a lot more art- artistic cred. They would be viewed with a, a more critical eye than Enya. Enya took fucking Irish music and she came from a very deep tradition but mixed it in with ambient electronica before that was even cool. Before it was even a thing. So there's another kind of case for that argument. Um, If you're a music head now listening to this you're probably shaking your head massively or you might agree with me. I don't know. But how Enya like she was using keyboard she was using synths like uh she was using Yamaha DX7 and all that and one of the Juno synths, which are rave synths. And she was incorporating this into Irish Irish traditional mystical music. That's an insane level of vision and an insane level of courage. And yes, it was commercially fucking successful, but it needs an like you know, Tom Waits is commercially successful too. So is Frank Zappa. Not not to the scale of Enya. But they also are allowed to be considered innovative geniuses who, you know, were ahead of their time, who used... Like, again, take it back to Aphex Twin. You know, Aphex Twin gets huge amount of praise, deservedly so, for electronic innovation. Where's Enya's praise for electronic innovation? You, you'll you find one or two people if you Google it. But when you compare the level of praise that she gets as, as an artist, critically, nothing to do with sales, as an artist, when you compare that against the amount of sales that she has, it's practically non-existence. And fucking Brian Eno. You know, I'm not shitting on Brian Eno. Brian Eno is deserving of the credit he gets for innovation. But Brian Eno is someone as well who unapologetically... 
released music for airports. You know, straight up. It's like, this is functional music to make people feel relaxed in airports. And then everyone sucking his dick is a genius. You know, that's new age to an extent. It's like, here's some functional music. And Brian Eno gets the respect. I just think, I just think that needs to be a... Someone needs to be out there singing those praises right now. There needs to be a reassessment from a technical production, creative and artistic point of view for this Irish fucking artist who created her own genre. And again, it's it's like ABBA. It's it's it can be hard to go like with ABBA, it's hard to go back and listen to ABBA with fresh ears, even though ABBA are so important to modern pop. Like Modern pop, we'll say the roots would be uh, Motown and the Beatles as such. Now, by pop, I mean bubblegum radio pop. Music which unapologetically just wants to be really catchy, okay? So, the Beatles are one really important group in that respect. And so are uh, Motown, Diana Ross and the Supremes, uh, fucking Martha Reeves and the Vandellas. Anything written by... Holland Dozy or Holland, I think was the team in Motown. That established the catchy... And the Beach Boys as well. Let's not forget about the Beach Boys. That established, we'd say, modern pop. A catchy hook. Verse, chorus, verse, maybe a middle eight. But then ABBA came along in the early 70s. And what they brought to pop music was the idea of multiple hooks. And now a hook is the catchy part in the song that you remember. What ABBA did... Abba said, okay, the Beatles might have two hooks in their music, or the Motown might have three. Abba were like, fuck that, let's have eight. Let's have eight hooks. Let's have multiple parts of the song that are really catchy. That's now the norm in pop music. Pop music that's written by the likes of, of Max Martin. Like, you know, Ariana Grande, uh, Lady Gaga in particular. You listen to a Lady Gaga song, you'll find five or six separate bits that could almost exist as their own songs because they're so catchy. And so ABBA are incredibly important. Now they do get a bit of respect, they do get a bit of respect from songwriters in that respect. They do get a lot more respect than Enya would get, we'll say. But it can be hard to listen to ABBA because the music is so overplayed and we're so familiar to it. To go to ABBA's music with fresh ears and extract everything you'd know about them and all the cultural um, connotations that you have and to actually just listen to the music to do that is just like fucking hell this is genius any is the exact same and it was difficult for me to do because like I said I grew up in a culture where Enya was considered embarrassing useless music and it was spoken about as if she's tricking the world and we should be embarrassed by it. So, to sit down and listen to Enya with fresh ears and actually go, fuck me. Did she just take Irish music and mix rave synths with it? And sometimes she's not even speaking in English. She's got her own language going on. This is her own genre. And to take it back to just to how, how genres and labels are used within music to either, as, as codified words that add or take critical value, New Age is a term that takes critical value from music. It means music that operates 
on, on a functional basis. Novelty, similarly, or, or not even novelty, comedy. Comedy music is a bad word. When you hear this music is comedy music, we think, oh, it's just there to make you laugh. Uh, that's a function. Therefore, it must not have value artistically as, as music. But when you say music is satirical, this satirical music, then you can go, all oh, right, it's probably really artistically strong music um, and it's got satire. But I don't really see a difference between comedy music and satire other than the label. Similarly, new age music. The the appropriate uh, the, the term for new age music that has, we'll say, critical rigor will be ambient music. So if you call something ambient music, then it's allowed to be cool. Then it's allowed to have credibility and artistic value. But you say new age music, and it it stops having critical rigor anymore. Enya's stuff. Why is it called new age and not ambient? Because if you look at the ambient music that she's clearly gone on to influence, um, fucking Radiohead stuff after K-Day, um, I would imagine a lot of Aphex Twin stuff is Enya influenced, especially the, the earlier ambient works that Aphex Twin did. I hear a lot of Enya in there. Who else? Boards of Canada, you know, they're an ambient group who'd have huge artistic credibility, most definitely influenced by Enya. Grimes, I hear a lot of Enya in Grimes, even though she's not ambient, but she would use elements of it. Ambient music has got a new credibility and respect these days. I think in particular how, because we listen to music through Spotify and people search Spotify more for moods than genres, people will throw on a big load of fucking ambient music to either to calm down or to study or to relax. And in 2019, this is okay. It's not... The credibility isn't stripped in the way that New Age was. So look, you know, you can disagree with me. I'm not saying you have to now go and like Enya's music in the same way that you might like The Prodigy or Aphex Twin. Taste is subjective, but, you know, innovation and creativity, they're not subjective, they're objective. And... You know, you will find people, you know, you're going to find people in the know who will actually be going, yeah, Enya is a creative, innovative genius. I've known her all along. And you'll find one or two critics also making this case. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. But, I mean, what are her sales? It's I, th- I think she sold 30 million art, uh, albums, okay? 30 fucking million albums. That's, it's Michael Jackson territory. It's huge. 30 million albums sold versus the amount of people actually crediting her as an innovative genius. That's the problem. You know, 30 million albums, a handful of articles actually discussing her artistic innovation. That's not acceptable. I don't think that's acceptable, personally. Moving on. So, like I said, two-part podcast this week. Um, Going to be very long. If you've been listening from the start, you could have gone forward an hour if that's what you wanted to do, if you just wanted to go straight to the interview. It's it's a podcast, you see, so it's your choice. You don't like it, This is probably going to be three hours long, possibly about that, I'd say, if not a little bit under. You can listen to it by yourself across a couple of days. You can listen to it in one. Or you can skip the first half and listen to what you want. It's a podcast, so you have complete control or autonomy. 
So we'll do the banjo pause so that I can insert the... One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, this is an advertisement for better help. I have frequently attended therapy for the past 20 years when I experience anxiety or depression or when I have difficulty Naming and labelling my emotions, identifying my emotions, I often seek the help of a professional therapist to improve my emotional literacy. I've attended therapy in person and I've attended therapy online. If online therapy is something you might be interested in, give better help a try. It's entirely online, it's convenient, flexible and it's suited to your schedule. All you got to do is fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So give it a go. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash blindby today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash blindby. The mid, mid-roll fucking adverts or whatever they're called for Acast. So here's the banjo pause. There you go. Not one mistake this week. Um. Right, also... This podcast is supported by you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, if you like it, it's supported by you. you. You are the patron of this podcast by subscribing to the Patreon, giving me the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. You are supporting my life, essentially. You're supporting my existence. That's That's my wage. I know how much money I get every month now for the first time in my life as a professional artist which is a fucking amazing feeling it is an incredible feeling I have the I feel like I have a job do you get me I've always had a job I've always had a job I was an artist but you don't know where your money's coming from you could get a nice paycheck this month and wait six months for the next one and not have any freedom to buy something nice for yourself because you're going Got a nice bit. I got a nice bit of money this month. Better squirrel it all away or pay the fucking electricity bill. I definitely can't, uh, you know, fucking buy a few pairs of jeans or some shit like that. So thank you if you're a patron. Thank you. You are fucking changing my life. Um, 
it's a soundness basis everyone gets the same podcast you don't have to be a patron if you don't want to some people do some people don't god bless you so let's move on to part two of this podcast which is a live podcast that i did in the sugar club about two months ago with i two guests ellie kiziambe and michelle darmody now this podcast is about direct provision uh direct provision is like it's a human rights abuse as such that's kind of been carried out in ireland uh for the past 20 years it's not spoken about really in the media uh people in direct provision aren't really given a huge amount of representation in the irish media it's something that's swept under the carpet in my opinion it's it's this generation's magdalene laundry so i brought onto the podcast uh Ellie Kiziambe is, she herself is, has been living, is living and has been living in direct provision for over 10 years. She's the first person in direct provision who'll be running for local election. Michelle Darmody is uh, a chef and a food writer and she's doing a PhD on food, I believe. But Ellie and Michelle Darmody created a, an organisation called Our Table which it aims to raise awareness around direct provision using food and they're a pair of legends and just give it a listen give it a listen this it's important stuff and we had good crack as well what is the crack how are you getting on good. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you be mind the keep the microphones close if you can okay hello yeah. So, if you could introduce yourselves, first of all. Uh, my name is Eli Kishonber. Uh, I moved, I'm, I'm an Irish asylum seeker woman, so I moved from Malawi, I should say so. Um, and I'm almost a decade living here in Ireland in direct provision system. Um, my name is Michelle Darmody. I'm a food writer, and I've always been interested in using food as a way to communicate. And I think it's just something that we all have in common and we all eat every day. So, um, like, I'm doing a PhD now looking at food, so writing about food, so exploring food in all its different capacities. So can you tell us what, like, from the start, what our table is and how it began? Um, I said it started in 2014, 15? 14, end of 14. 14. End of 14. Yeah. 14. We met um, end of 14, yeah. Um, but in, for the lads to know, to know in inter- <laughs> um, indirect provision, um, the people in direct provision can't cook their own food. Yeah, so I think I should uh, uh, best start that part. So I moved over here almost uh, a decade ago to um, seek political asylum. So I'm coming from Malawi, where my family, um, uh, I'm coming from a very strong and political family. And where is Malawi in uh, Africa? So Malawi is Southern Africa, uh, okay. Mozambique, Zambia, mm-hmm. Zimbabwe, South Africa, going up there. So... Um, when I arrived here in Ireland, I was accepted to enter in the country. So maybe I should just give two uh, definitions of refugees and asylum seekers. Yeah. So a refugee is somebody who um, 
they've been come over to any country that they've been assigned from where they are coming from, like Lebanon, Syria, uh, Eritrea, Congo, uh, uh, Rwanda, as program refugees. So when they are coming here, uh, when they are coming to every country, which is a country there which they might feel safe, they are already programmed. So they are already given the title as an, a refugee. So they are allowed in their country straight away. So an asylum seeker is somebody that you found yourself a form of how to travel to get to the safe country that you are going to go. And when you are upon your arrival, you can be accepted to enter into the country. So when you've accepted to enter into the country, you ask for asylum. And if you've accepted, they let you in the country. So you live in that country from one or two days or a week. Uh, in Ireland, it takes up to... Um, now it's a 19-year system, so in it's Ireland, a 19, 19 years now. 19 yeah, years. 19 years, yeah. And how long have you been in direct provision? Uh, so I've been in direct provision almost 10 now. Yeah. yeah. So the system was started in uh, 2000, uh, and it was just started by a temporary measure to accommodate asylum seekers when they were coming uh, here in Ireland. Because I think in the early 90s, late 90s, uh, Ireland didn't see a lot of people that mm -hmm. were coming over to Ireland to seek asylum. So they didn't even have that fear of uh, uh, how they could make... Uh, like a place for the people that are coming in to, to, to stay in there. So what they did in, I think, around 10, 1999, 1997, 96, 97, they saw a lot of numbers of people which were not uh, too, too many. So when they saw that numbers, they, they figured out, like, okay, how, do, how can they make it uh, better for the people that are coming to find a temporary accommodation while they are seeking for a longer-term accommodation for these people that they've entered into the country. So, like, for my 10 years... Uh, living here in Ireland and for somebody who also I'm an activist, I'm a human rights activist and I think um, Ireland has uh, a thing that they're not prepared they're not ready of when and what and what if. So I think that was just like, okay, we just get this thing and we bring these people and leave them there. Ash, it will be grand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's done. We're all good. We give them lasagna, cardor, and yeah, they're good. So yeah. <laughs> I think that was it. So uh, and, and then after, uh, like, I think 2000, and then the numbers started growing. So uh, in that, you know, like, this system was planned when there was what happened and what if. So I think so they a, lost in the way. A really <laughs> quick temporary solution yeah. is consistently being used as a long-term solution, and that's not workable. It is. It is a long-term process, and I think... I think they actually don't know what to do now. So, and we are at the worst uh, um, point of whereby I think this system needs to go and uh, we, we need to find ways of how people can be accommodated because as we see now with the climate change and the change of environment and people are living every day and, uh, and we are going to see a lot of numbers and with Brexit and you know, like a lot of things going on in the European Union, there'll be a lot of stuff that's gonna affect it. And I think now, me as, uh, as an asylum seeker and as also a migrant, I feel like Ireland, we are at a really good place that if we can find a solution to the problems that we have now, we won't become bad as the way England has or yeah. America has. And I feel like it's a duty for us as you know, this generation to not let it go beyond us because if we want, we'll let it go beyond us, then we're going to have a problem and it's going to be us, our children and our great-grandchildren because these people who are lined up now that they started this system, they won't be here for another 50 years. So, yeah. so we have to think about us. Um, so 
Could you mention to the audience some of the restrictions that are put on the, the life of a person living in direct provision? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, uh, so when I arrived there and I, at the airport, I seeked asylum and I was accept, uh, accepted. So I was taken into a Baseskin reception center, which is in St. Margaret's Road. That's where everyone who seeks asylum, you know, they are there to, uh, like, it's a process system which takes, like, from one to two weeks or to four weeks. So when you are there, you are taken into this uh, a place where you find many other people coming from different areas and you share a room and it's about one to four people in four beds in that room so you live with people from different uh, 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 from a different country sometimes even people that you don't even speak many language yeah. same language and some of them that maybe they don't even understand English so um, that's the setup and then you go in the morning you go get your breakfast and then you come back at 12 you you're going you you go back maybe sleep or watch a little bit TV and then you go back and you have uh, lunch and then you go back again uh, uh, at uh, an, uh, dinner time and you get your dinner and you go back. So while, you are, you, while you've moved there then you are taken into another center that's going to be your home from that day to 10 years to 12 years to 15 years. So you are moved alongside other direct provision centers. As I'm talking now, we have 39 direct provision centers, as they've said, because the numbers have risen since after the Brexit, um, and we have a lot of numbers coming here to Ireland. So now the centers are growing up. And you've also heard like what's happened in, in Shannon and what's happened in, yeah. in, in Donegal. These are some of the problems. So when you are there, you're taken to outskirts of uh, Ireland, and then these centers are set up like the old hotels or the convents uh, or or the army camps, and you know, yeah. Like, yeah, stuff like that. So you live there, and you live in a room. So if you have like small toddlers, like kids, and then you live with these kids in one room, like we are you are talking of a, a hotel double bedroom. So you live there basically from you know that day you get in there and. Um, uh, there are little things that they've changed recently, but before, uh, when you arrive there, you are not allowed to go for third level education. Kids can go to school up to live inside, but you're not going for third level education. And not only that, you get 29 euro a week, mm -hmm. and uh, you're not allowed to cook. Um, um, basically, you, 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 you don't have like any... Are people allowed to... like? cook in their rooms? Are they allowed to like buy a toaster? No, no, you can't because actually if you're single, like when I was coming I, I'm a mother anyway, but when I was coming, I come here by myself because I had to live first. So like as you're, sing you're, you're single, you live with other four people. So you can imagine if everyone wants, if I want to cook food from Southern Africa and somebody wants to cook from Nigeria and somebody wants to cook from you know, it's going to be chaotic and it's just a small room. So you don't have that chance of like cooking in there. And even if you're a family you're not allowed because there's no cooking facility, you know, like the way the hotel room is. It's mm -hmm. just like a bed and a, the toilet. So you don't have a room of uh, to make food there, so there's nothing. But it like sounds that. as well to me like a system whereby adults are treated like children. Uh, it's very hard to live in direct provision, mainly for somebody who uh, you have your independent, and I, and I think also I want people to start understanding that become a refugee or an asylum seeker, it can happen to even somebody like you. Yeah. Irish people did move and went to uh, America, Australia, yeah. another country through the the famine time. So it doesn't even really need that it has to be somebody that you know walks from the Irish show with no shoes. With, I'm coming from a very strong political family, and I have to be honest with you, I, I grew up in a in a very good childhood that even now I I wouldn't even see myself like what I've been you know what I've been through 
school, but unfortunately I lost my parents and I lost many members of families through you know the struggles that we went through. And uh, coming from where you are coming from, when you are involved in politics, there's so much frustration that... So, yeah, so why did you seek asylum? No, I seek asylum because of uh, political reasons. And uh, okay. I, lost my, uh, I lost my dad, uh, I yeah. lost my uncle. Uh, um, my, my father was somebody who built politicians and my uncle was a vice president for the opposition party. Mm -hmm. And even through that, me, myself, I grew up in this blood and then I started becoming very, very active in politics mm -hmm. and being angry for what I've grown up, you know, like mm -hmm. seeing. So those are the reasons. And as, as maybe... Uh, you followed me here in Ireland. I'm a very opinionated person, so mm -hmm. you know. So that's me. So uh, if I was in Malawi, it couldn't end up really well. I would have lost my my life because I, I lost. I've lost many people and some yeah. of my friends. So that's why I had to leave and come to Ireland. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. So Michelle, when did you then started? When did our table come about? But like, what? What's? You were a food writer. You, were you a cook as well? Uh, yeah, I um, have run food businesses for the, um, I suppose, the last 12 years, and I had heard about direct provision and kind of learned more about it, and I suppose the idea of cooking kind of really resonated with me, because that's something that, that I do every day, I love to cook, and the idea that you couldn't sit around a table, share your meal with your yeah. family, you know, if you have children, you can't cook, and teach them the traditions that, um, the, you know, from your own country, from your own families, so... That had just really upset me and it really annoyed me, among loads of other problems in direct provision, but that was the one that really resonated with me. And I approached the Irish Refugee Council and just suggested that, like, I've worked in food businesses in Ireland and I would love to try and do a project around food and using food as the connection uh, with people. And also I think food, it was a really um, good way to bring empathy into it and to bring solidarity. I Irish people in the wider community could really relate to that one particular idea. So um, I went into the Irish Refugee Council and Ellie was interning there at the time, so we just clicked and started chatting. And at the beginning, we went five or six times to this kitchen out near Rathmines, mm -hmm. and we just cooked. We just brought loads of vegetables and And it was just the two of and no, yeah. it was different. Mainly women, actually, from Direct Provision Direct came Vision, yeah. and chopped and cooked. Mm -hmm. And it was just really emotional. It was really emotional, really simple. And just people who hadn't been allowed to cook for so long. And suddenly there was a yeah. like bag of vegetables from your own country. And yeah. we just shared and recipes and chatted. And um, from that then, there was loads of discussion about this could be used as... Um, awareness building so for me it was really the idea that like we can get the message out there through food and through a nice story and a gentle story that you know maybe a Saturday newspaper is going to talk about this idea that we're all cooking together where they might not talk about the harsh realities of direct provision quite as easily so from that we did um, a two-day event in the Project Arts Centre in Temple Bar gave us just free space they're amazing they said use our space for whatever you want so we did we did a two-day pop-up and we kind of expected I don't know, 50 people to come along, we didn't think. And then about 300 people literally came through the door on the first day. We were just sitting there going, oh my God, luckily we did enough food. And everyone just sat. It was a bit donation-based. People could leave some money, donate. And we got some media involved and just got the conversation started about the fact that people are not allowed cook and direct provision. And from that, I think we kind of all got really energised and then decided to do a longer version. So we did three months again in the Project Arts Centre and that was much more about training. So we used the space. So there's also the problem when you leave direct provision. So, I mean, Ellie's been particularly active, but there's a lot of people who maybe don't have the, the energy and the ability and the, and the resources or the courage to go out. So a lot of people mightn't have worked. They've just haven't... They can find yourself in a state of limbo after six 
six or seven years in a system that's so um, demeaning. And we were trying to provide a space where people, if they were interested in the catering industry, could come and learn. We did barista training, we did health and safety training, we did different training within the space. A really safe space, everyone got paid a living wage, and people could work and just learn from that experience. So that was the impetus for the three-month um, project that we did. And then from then, Ellie's been really taking over the mantle and working loads at the moment, um, using the kitchen in the basement of um, Christchurch Cathedral. They've been really generous and just given that kind of open space to use and making hot sauces and doing loads of different projects. But generally, the idea is using food as a solidarity do conversation. The public, is, it, is it food that's available for sale to the public? Yeah, Those so projects were, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's where we've grown now. So uh, we food, we, we are like social enterprise at the moment, yeah. And did you find that, like, because one of the things that, that what you were speaking there about direct provision is people from different parts of the world, mm-hmm. so you can't speak necessarily. Like, I've, I've heard that in different direct provision centres, there's new almost languages forming mm-hmm. because there's so many people with different... Yeah, different languages. We have over... Um, I don't have facts on that, but I can just assume that maybe we have over uh, people that speak 20 languages, so we are very, very different, diverse of people. Um, um, I think, um, like, how the food broken down in our table in relation of uh, uh, integration and also the people from direct provision. Uh, uh, before I met with Michelle, so we were doing, like, a bit of work, like gardening and stuff like that, trying to bring asylum seeker. And also, like, I've been very, very much active, like what Michelle said. And, I, you know, like, it was just coming here and then tell the story and sometimes you cry because you are carrying a lot of baggages and you bring 10 people that have different traumatizing stories but then the food thing it really changed that the way people like saw us they saw they saw me differently they didn't see me like as somebody who come with that story that was really strong and then we end up like mm, and I, you know I'm going through because everyone is going through hard stuff and no one want, don't want you to go there and to traumatize them again you know yeah. like as much as, as much as we have so much going on so I think food kind of like uh, give us a therapy that, you know, like uh, we will cry, but then we'll be like, mm, yeah, you know, the food is nice. But at least we are crying on the other side. So it was very good. It was really great. So that's what our table did. So it, it wasn't like cutting the placards, like taking the banners uh, at the justice ministry, but now it was food. And it was food in a spaces whereby people didn't even expect an asylum seeker uh, to, uh, to cook food. Yeah, so... Um. Because this is one thing I wonder too is there will be people in direct provision who are dealing with trauma mm-hmm. from what they escaped. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, mm-hmm. this, the trauma of the existence of being in direct provision mm-hmm. and not having a sense of freedom or a sense of place. Mm-hmm. Is, do you feel that their mental health is adequately provided for or are there mental health services within direct provision? Um, you know, like uh, the whole system is a sham. Right? There's yeah. nothing right about it. And the whole language barrier, it's another problem that even I myself, I speak good English, but you know, like I can't take 12 hour conversation with you. Like it's gonna be like, it's yeah. gonna overwhelm me, you know? So you're dealing with somebody that has limited. Uh, has limited understanding of English. It's a big problem. That itself, it's a mental health issue. Right before yeah. even that mental mental health problem comes in, so you're talking with somebody who, even on a language barrier, they don't even have communications. And these people that works through these direct provision centers, they have so much power. They have so much power that a guard in a direct provision center can act like a minister of justice. 
if you're not really careful. So these people are dealing with people that, in, in, I, I mean, we have to appreciate that there are, so, there are other people that they are so, um, they're so uneducated that they see an asylum seeker as somebody who does not even have education, does not even have life. And on, on a white privilege card, they see this person as lesser than them. So, you know, like the way uh, the administration intimidates people there, it's even a big issue. So food, to me, is something that actually can help, can enlighten somebody to see the world in a very different way. Because we've seen like a lot of people that, you know, like coming from Syria, that they didn't even have language. We've cooked with the most amazing mm. women that, you know, they've come and only what they know is food. And the way they take food and put your mouth and the way you, you've been nodding and liking that food, you see the change of environment. And, and that's, uh, you know, it's communication without it's language. Communication, so it's communication, yeah. using food. Yeah. As a language, yeah. And do you find as well when you're working with these other people with different cuisines from different cultures that these cuisines are intermingling into new dishes? Are they creating new dishes from it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, we had a real, well, like, real mixture. Syrian and African have been yeah. our main mm. kind of two. When we were at our table in the project, there was uh, Hula, an amazing baker. She used to come in and do all the Syrian pastries and deliver them in. And then you'd have Bajila, mm. which are kind of like, I learned quite quickly, like a little falafel, but they're made of beans and they're crushed up. So made similar to falafel. So you'd have Bajila to start with and then these Syrian pastries all on the one kind of serving dish because that's what we, we were serving. So there was a real kind of amalgamation of different cultures and things that really worked. Like it was just a really... Um, it was really tasty and safe space. And then we had really, really interesting people coming in and talking, like Nailta gave a speech, Colin O'Gorman with Stephen Ray opened the project. So yeah. we brought all these different people in. So using kind of the space as an activist space for those people to talk and to give um, support to the project. And then using, again, food was just a really easy way to invite them all in. Come in, have dinner, have a chat, like talk to us about it and give us kind of a... Really good and also what you, well, what you have to know is food is culture you know you can actually know or understand people through food because if we can just lay like five different types of food here we can actually name where the food is coming from and like I, I, I okay I, yeah, yeah like I'm fan of cook I'm fan of cooking and from where I'm coming from we have different types of patties so like you know actually that yeah that was a question because I asked the internet for questions and <laughs> one question was what is the significance of food in Malawian culture yeah so um, we have like wedding food we have funeral food you know if I, I if I make here like beans and you know like uh, cow intestines which we, we 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 call them I mean like we don't mess up with meat so we eat from the toes to the heads. <laughs> also, Ellie can't, Ellie can't cook for like five people. No, I can't you cook, cook like for, for about a hundred. Yeah. I'm absolutely not joking. Like it's literally this pot of food this size. I was like, there's only about four people coming. And she's like, literally. But that's what you're saying. You're used to like, it's basically yeah. cook a big pot of food. Yeah. Everyone comes and shares like, and eats I, together. I get mad cook for 10 people. I'm like, you know, what do you want me to do in the kitchen? Because it's like, you know, I should kind of like like you know one I don't do one two I do I do cooking <laughs> <laughs> um, one question I had here was uh, first off like what are the a lot of people wanted to know what can everyday Irish people do to either to end direct provision or to help the people in direct provision. That's what most people wanted to know. It's Lobby or 
politicians. Yeah, I lobby think po- and, and I think, guys, now we really have to say enough is enough. Because I know I'll be saying this, and the government would, would not want you people to know that. There are almost 200 people coming into Ireland every day. And what you have to understand is like we are living in one of the countries that has a human rights laws. So you know, like these laws protect people. So in whatever they can even lie to you, like okay, there's nothing uh, like uh, climatically or demographic changes, these people are going to live here in Ireland. And if we can't create a space whereby when people comes here, we are, we are allowing for people to be locked for 10 years. I mean, if you can just be locked for a month or two months, you become disengaging yourself to the society. So if we can let this government lock people for over 10 years and pe- these people become very dysfunctional, what are these, what are these people going to do when they're going to be let in the, in the communities after five, yeah. 10 years? I've been really lucky that, you know, I saw my time living in a direct provision seriously. And I have to be honest with you, it has taken me a lot of strength, a lot of strength to be where I'm sitting right at the moment. I've met amazing people. But it's not like everyone, other people maybe did not meet amazing people, but it's how courageous you are and what strength do you carry. So, like, there's a lot of people that they don't have that much energy like what I have. And life is fighting. You can ask Michelle, like, every day I come with a baggage of stories. And sometimes, like, how did I manage to get through today? Oh, I'm leaving. <laughs> that's, that's what puts my, like, okay, I, I still have life, you know? So if these people are going to live there for 10 years, and then after 10 years come into our community, what kind of a community yeah. are we going to have? And that's something that should be scare everyone. And by being scared with that, we really need to push the government to do the right things. There are many ways. Ireland is, um, Ireland is a country that's just growing. At the moment, there is a place for everyone. And not even only that, if they can let people like the way of have integrated into Irish society. You know, you never know how other people that they can actually do amazing things like I mean, like what we've done. One thing you have to understand is we also contribute to the economy. At the moment, we have 15 people on our payroll. We've mm-hmm. worked with more than 50 people as volunteers, right? And these people are carrying a wage. That means they are moving on with their lives. They are not even stuck at all. There are a lot of people that they've been educated um, through our table, and they've gone along and do a different life. So if we can try to integrate people in this way and if we can allow people to give them independence, 10, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, we won't have problems that we are going to have two, three years from now. So we have to start lobbying our politicians and we have to give them uh, hard time. Ask them questions. What's going on? Their direct provision now that they can't name because of the issues that we've been they've been going on. I, I can't blame them for that if they decide not well, to say there's the, cent- the yeah. centres now aren't, the Irish Refugee Council don't even know where the direct, pre- direct provision centres are at yeah. the moment Why? because of the fires. They're, because, not, you know, like, they're, okay. they're yeah. keeping their location secret. Secrets, so that's yeah. what you're referring so, to. So yeah, yeah, there was mm. direct provision centres were attacked, uh, firebombed. Mm. Um, so, now, so now they're secrets, obviously. Yeah, yeah. which yeah. is which you can't blame them for that because these are people, and you can yeah. imagine if that day there was eighty people in that hotel, what would have been talking right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Another way, sorry, just to interrupt. Um, Massey is also would be kind of a good way to contact a migrant. Um, uh, Massey, so, yeah. Yeah. So Lucky Kambule involved Massey. So they have representatives around different parts of the country in different centres. So that would be another way of. of Yart. At this point, there was an intermission, so people could have a piss and a pint. 
and then we can back out onto stage. One one thing I want to touch on because we did we didn't speak about it beforehand, right? But it's it's something to to consider about the system of direct provision, right? Which is this is a far profit thing. And that's what makes it really, really dodgy and dangerous, okay? So like we mentioned, the, in America, the prison system is privatized, so therefore it's in someone's interest to have a bunch of prisoners because they make money. With direct provision, the taxpayer... There, there's, base, there's hotels that fell apart in the Celtic Tiger. And then conveniently, these hotels that would have gone out of business and the owners of the hotels are all friends with politicians from Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael and all this... There are hotels that are raking in the cash, that have got full occupation all the time with direct provision and also with the homeless families who aren't being rehoused and they're being living in, in hotels. Aramac, the corporation that are providing the catering for direct provision, sure, of course they don't want the people living there to be cooking for themselves because Aramac are raking in the cash, tax money, we're paying for it, to provide poor quality food for the people there and for them to have no autonomy. So it's, there is a lot of people that if direct provision ends tomorrow, there are a lot of powerful people in this country who are out of pocket. Avoca, well, as well, now I don't think there's anyone here who likes eating cheesecakes and admiring rugby players. <laughs> but if you do enjoy cheesecakes and possibly having an affair with a rugby player, Avoca is also owned by Aramac. But that's something, I wa- that's something I wanted to touch on. It's, fuck that. Do you know what I mean? Seriously. And as well, I, I, like I was saying, I was comparing it to the, the Magdalene thing. The Magdalene laundries are privatised too. Who played uh, the game Mousetrap as a child? Yeah. That was made in Ireland. In Magdalene laundries. Yeah. Uh, they went to the Magdalene Laundries and said, we've got this game, it's got loads of small little parts, can the women, and this, I'm talking 1991, late 80s, the women in Magdalene Laundries were working for no money to manufacture games that were being sold to us as kids, we didn't know. So that's privatised, the church making money. Um, like, fuck, fuck all of that. Let's end that, please. Um, Ellie, I heard you have very controversial opinions about coddle. (laughs) (laughs) What about it? (laughs) Look, I'm from Limerick. I don't don't give a fuck about coddle. I'm from Limerick. It's a Dublin thing. I respect it. Do you know, I would eat coddle if I could fry the sausage first. (laughs) It has to be boiled, yeah? (laughs) So, Ellie, at the risk of turning the entire audience against you, (laughs) please express your opinions about coddle. (laughs) So, I'm a Dubliner, you see. So, I... <laughs> How do you see this is let's talk about the, the 
the children in direct provision, children that are born in direct provision, mm-hmm. there's, there's now adults that are like 19, like 17, 18, and they've known nothing other than direct provision. Is this correct? Yeah, uh, you know, like there are two types of kids that they've grown, born and grown up in direct provision. So you're talking of kids that they've arrived here in Ireland when they were maybe from zero age to five. Yeah. So these kids, that means, you know, like between age of three, that's when you start trying to know things. Yeah. So these are kids that they've grown here in Ireland. So the life that they, their young age and their adulthood, the life that they would know, they would know life in direct provision. Because I think, yeah, we have like the 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds that they've, They've grown and uh, lived in direct provision. So, yeah. sorry. Um, oh, here's a good question that I was asked. Which country do you think has the the best model for integration of migrants into their society, and how difficult would it be for Ireland to adapt that model? So, who who do you think is doing a a good job? Um, like we've seen countries like Switzerland, Italy. Um, um, Wait. Uh, there's Switzerland, Italy, and there's also one of the country. Okay, I remember before that, like Italy, it's been exhausted with uh, refugees and migrants because that's that's where the shows are. So if people are traveling through Libya and over the sea, they arrive in Italy. So there'll be like countries that they've been exhausted, but they they are really trying. Like Italy is using one of the med- models that I've also connect to other people that we are researching that might maybe actually help us. So it's getting refugees in the, in the, into the country. To avoid leaving them in direct provision, they're being given accommodation in return of leaving those free accommodation while they're waiting for their cases, but also do, not community work, but being able to work. So these people are sent into private and public sectors to work as builders, cleaners, and but while they're living a normal life. And they get uh, some vouchers to live a normal independent life by being able to go to the market and get ingredients, because that also is one of the theory thing that we as a human being, you know, just by going to the market and being able to source ingredients and being able to stand in your home, even to make a decision that this is what I want to feed my family, that's what yeah. we call a normal living. So they're being able to be given that independence of living a normal life. And on the other hand, they're also contributing to the community. Yeah. So by this period of time, whether you are keeping these people for 10, for one to 10 years, these people, they are already contributing to the society that when you are giving them, uh, when you give them their right to live in the country, they won't even have any problem with integration. And Switzerland has the same one, has the same uh, model where they are integrating people by providing them with jobs and, you know, like a healthy living and a normal independent life. And for them also to offer their services by being able to do a lot of work. So even if you are uh, a professional professional, like you, maybe for an IT or a doctor. So you'll be working in a hospital by the day you arrive yeah. in the country. So that means by the time your case is being processed, you know, you've already well integrated and maybe you've even upskilled in your education. So those are the types of the models that we need here in Ireland. And do you find a lot of people in direct provision who were doctors, highly trained professions who are yeah. now their skills are not being used. Yeah, 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 we have. And another thing that I've noted, people who are coming from Sudan, you know, like people who are coming from places like Sudan, Eritrea, they are people that they've gone into the camp, some of them since they were young, some of them since they were born. So they're living in, uh, in, in Kenya and Uganda. So those people, they've gone through education, although they were in the camp. So they come equipped, many of them teachers, many of them doctors. So if they find a chance of getting over here, they're already equipped. 
maybe the thing that they are lacking is to work on a professional level. Yeah. So what can uh, what countries like Ireland can do is to make sure that you know they give them that uh, uh, opportunity of upskilled their levels and you know integrate and contribute to the to the country. There was a story about an asylum seeker in Wicklow who was a nurse. And uh, when he arrived himself in the country, he managed to integrate himself. You know, he went out and volunteered in the hospitals. He waked, he nursed people. And uh, unfortunately, he was uh, given a deportation. Yeah. So he was not sure of what's going to happen to him. But because the laws in Afghanistan says if you're being deported from wherever you are coming from and on a political reasons, you are going to you know, go straight into the prison. So he wasn't sure of his fate and he was really, really scared that I might even battle it out, but I might be sent back to Afghanistan. So that means I won't even live again. So it's better I should just live by myself and uh, you know, at least maybe I can find and other options of what I can do next. But, uh, you know, like, he was somebody who really integrated really well, and he offered his good services, and they, I mean, they, they, the government didn't want to keep him. And, mm -hmm. you know, so that's really bad. Um, one thing you said earlier that I hadn't thought of before was, like, so indirect provision, it, you're directly provided food, mm -hmm. no opportunity mm -hmm. to work, mm -hmm. um, no ability to gain wealth essentially because it's what is it 39 pounds a week uh 21 you now it's 21 euro 60 the time i was coming it was 19 19 euro 10 and so with that 19 euros you're able to leave the center during the day and maybe go to the shop yeah but you know you can't do much with 19 you just think no. of the coffee and the pastry yeah um and is there a curfew in direct provision yeah there is many of them 10 o'clock yeah like, I'm living now in a direct provision center because I was living in city center, so they closed where I was living, which was a bit more independent living, and uh, yeah, they closed it down, so now I had to go back, so I'm living near the airport, and uh, that's uh, behind the, uh, the behind the airport. It's called Braseskin Reception Center, and that's where I am. But, you know, because I'm early, I can get away with everything, but I've seen a lot there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But yet the thing that, that troubled me was, it's like, if you have people being directly provided for for so long, mm -hmm. it's like you said, you're setting those people up for failure yeah. if they then enter society, mm -hmm. which that right there, that's systematic racism. Mm -hmm. That is the system of racism. That means the people who come out, they don't have the opportunity. They don't, they, they don't have... Um, Everyone else has a head start. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you can have the example between me and Michelle. I think me and Michelle, the way we, uh, the time when we met, if we couldn't trust and learn, uh, learn about each other, we wouldn't even be here. And even like the, uh, the foundation that we've set up, it wouldn't even be where we are, which I'm even not hoping, but I know like 50 years now, we'll be talking of something that is going to be a huge part of Ireland. Mm -hmm. So if we could have looked at each other like, okay, she's an asylum seeker, I'm a white privileged Irish woman, and, uh, and these are the <laughs> Example that. <laughs> yeah, and I think and I think these are the example that people. I mean, the people they, they they should be looking at. And I was telling Michelle like I'm coming from a background whereby you know 
my parents, um, my, my, my mom, she was a good cook, you know. Mm-hmm. My aunt who raised me after my mom's dead, she was, a, she, she, she was a good chef. And my aunt, she did a lot. And we were the first uh, uh, owners of the bakery in Malawi. So, you know, like, if she didn't believe that, if she could undermine me, I think we wouldn't even be where we are at the moment. But... <laughs> um, and one thing as well I want to kind of promote is... Your like our table has now started doing like corporate events, like yeah. catering. Yeah. And any of ye, even if you had a twenty first, you know, or if you know you work in offices and things like that, if the office wants to get a caterer in, you can. Yeah. And that is a way for us to help the situation, to raise awareness. You know, mm-hmm. so definitely take that one home with you. And not just the people in the room, the people listening on the podcast and the internet. <laughs> but do you want to speak a little bit about that, the way that you're expanding in that way? Yeah, so we are expanding that way. You know, even where you are, if you have chefs, if you have managers, you can come and manage us in a, in a few years because we are aiming to grow uh, to grow bigger. Uh, so what what's happening now, we are uh, now social enterprise, so we are corporate caterers. So we, we've been really lucky that we've worked with a, a big organization like European Union, and they also help us to cater. I cook for 500, don't invite me for 10, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so um, we do conferences, and, and, and you know, like there's a lot of uh, stuff now going on about representative meeting, talking about the crisis, refugee crisis, not even a refugee crisis, but different type of events. So that's what we are we are, we are catering. So we are all over the country, uh, from to Pare- from Tibarere to Donegal, and uh, like in uh, mid uh, end of February, we'll be in, in uh, Tibarere for two weeks. Mm-hmm. So if you have an event, you can invite us to. Um, to come and cater for you, and not only cater for you, but also we have a spot in Christchurch, so you can uh, you can also book us. And if you want an event, we collaborate with the Christchurch Cathedral, and uh, you know we can set you up there. We have lovely pictures. We have uh, uh, on our website. We have um, uh, our table doubling as a Facebook, Twitter, and uh, Instagram, so you can follow us through there. And the food. Okay. <laughs> um. One thing I would like to know, though, is like you and the other people making this food and, and selling it, are you entitled to earn money from that? No, 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 no. So uh, I would say because Michelle went to school, so I was like kind of there now that I've been leading this. So I'm a volunteer CEO, yeah? I own a yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, I've got, yeah, so I do all this. For me, I do all this for, uh, on, on a volunteer basis, but for the rest of the staff, they're on a payroll. They're on a payroll. Yeah. So they, yeah. Okay. Good. We have. Yeah. Okay. And we we do everything by the books. We pay tax. You know. Yeah. <laughs> we don't do aramat thing. We pay tax. We pay all the necessary bills that the setup has to make. So. <laughs> so, before before I take audience questions, tell us about. Sorry for not asking you nothing. <laughs> Ellie, Ellie can talk. She's well able to talk. That's, what, that's how our marriage works. Although there is Declan. It's a dynamic. That's the dynamic. Sorry, Declan. <laughs> but you've now recently you're running with the Social Democrats. Yeah. Very recently. Yeah. You are the first ever person in direct provision to be going for a political thing, <laughs> which is amazing. Yeah. 
And can you imagine, like, just think of some, someone like Daniel O'Connell, what he would think of that, you know what I mean? He'd be 100% behind it. Um, tell us about that. Is it yeah. fun? Is it exciting? Yeah, it is exciting. There is a momentum building out there. Like I was launching my campaign yesterday and I got messages and I really got mess and it really made me cry for people that are abroad and I'm talking of Irish citizen. And uh, there was a woman who actually touched my heart. She said she left between 2010 and 2011. And by reading my story, it would be the time that I was coming here and she left through the recession times. And she was like, I, I, I left Ireland because I never felt like home you know like everything was falling apart and I'm also happy to know that the time when I was leaving home somebody was coming from somewhere to make Ireland home and I've been following your story and to be uh, where where you are going I hope you make it to the council but yeah the reason why I decided to do this because I've been working with another good friend of mine uh, Councillor Gary Gannon mm -hmm. so like I, I, I didn't he's I a didn't, good lad <laughs> yeah. so I, I, I like um he, I mean, I've been really, really lucky. Like the way we've seen, like me and Michelle, we are more than these co-founders of our table. Like now we are, we are sisters and we have like few other friends that are behind us. And that's even how Gary Gannon has been. So, you know, one thing that you have to understand for the uh, marginal problems in a social society that we are going through right now is people, they just want to feel, to feel heard. You know, mm -hmm. and there is a lot of people that they have so much, you know, they have so much that they don't want to share with anyone else. So if we can't do these things by ourselves, uh, I mean, there'll be a problem, you know. Yeah. So like for me, being in this uh, uh, activism that, you know, I fought from the grassroots and even just chanting of ending direct provision. And as even you can go on an Irish uh, party manifestos, there isn't uh, a party that has strong policy no. on migration or refugees and asylum seekers. So even if I can just be standing here and even talking about these issues, it won't mean anything. But you know, like going this way, I'm going, it's nothing about us without us. We have to mm -hmm. be there. We have to sit there because even our stories are not being told exactly the mm -hmm. stories are supposed to be told. And there is a lot of uh, margin um, Irish children that are born in LOE uh, 19, which I am. LOE 19 is my home. I've lived in Ashes Key for over five and a half years. And you know, like I'll get to know the roots of there. And that's how I fought, like the way I fought direct provision, because this is home. And I have to create a space whereby my children, my, my grandchildren, my great grandchildren, they are going to live without prejudice, without fear, of being in Ireland and without being segregated, but as a country that their grandmother fought for it and fought for the safer place for everyone. So that's what I'm trying to Class. say. <laughs> and it, it's North Inner City Dublin is the constituency, yeah? yeah. <laughs> North Inner City, okay. Yeah, North Inner City, yeah, so North Inner City, yeah. Um, how do you, like, just as you mentioned there, you know, no party has a proper kind of speaks about direct provision. Mm -hmm. Like, someone asked, like, do politicians even visit direct provision centres? I've never seen any. <laughs> How there was do you a working group set up. <laughs> yeah, there was a, a working, working group, group which set up. It's, it's not been followed. Group, yeah, yeah. The, uh, Judge Brian McCormon, which I, I really... I really applaud him that he did a great job. Uh, he's the one who led a um, working group that I was part of the asylum mm -hmm. seekers that we also led the asylum seeker movement. And uh, there was about 200 and 
200, um, you know, 30 something recommendations. But out of that, we haven't even, there is a little movement, you know, there is a little change, but we haven't yeah. even seen it's anything. There's been a paper drawn up, yeah. but very little of it. Yeah, but it very interesting yeah. said it. Like, yeah. as you can see, like what I'm telling you, like I'm, I'm, I'm a volunteer director, I can't actually earn a wage, it's, but I'm the old system. But yeah. you can imagine that people like me, we are not entitled, we are not allowed for that regulation to be able to work. So yeah. you can see how crazy the system is. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, I'm going to put the mic out to the audience, lads. Any questions? This gentleman here with the, the fetching ear separators. <laughs> what do you think of his jersey? What do, I, what do I think of your buddy's jersey? Tell us about your buddy's jersey. I'll let him tell you about it. It's lovely. Go on, <laughs> tell us about it. Right, so uh, actually, the, the point behind this jersey... <laughs> Sorry, I'm... I'm You're grand. I'm staring at Wonder. You're right. grand, man. Right, so the point behind this jersey, the, the fist is held in solidarity, held in the air for the movement. 10% of the profit of this jersey goes toward... Goes toward direct it's provision. Massive. Oh, good. Funny enough. <laughs> Who is the soccer team? Who's the... <laughs> you up the balls. The balls, okay. <laughs> Could I ask everybody here to join me in it? When I say fuck, you say rovers. <laughs> no, man. Fuck. I'm not. <laughs> fuck. <laughs> I wasn't about platforming that, man. <laughs> <laughs> but fair play to fair play the boys. Do you know what I mean? Ten percent of their t-shirt is, is it goes to? Is it Massey it goes to, or who is it? Do you know? I think that's that's the Massey symbol on the jersey, anyway. So. Okay. Yeah. Um, fair play, fair play. To. Any other questions? Yes. Hi. It's not really a question. It's just more of a statement. Of ah, for fuck's sake, no. <laughs> Sorry, sorry, it's just... Can you, can you shape, get your statement right and shape a little question mark at the end. Okay, I'll try my best. Uh, it's just a statement of admiration. Uh, you come across with such strength and power and I think you're doing such good work and I just want to congratulate you and keep doing what you're doing. And my question is, um, any next future plans? <laughs> yeah, so I am going into politics, so you know where I'm heading, right? Yeah, so watch the space. <laughs> Thank you. Anyone else just raise the old hand, preferably in this direction, because poor old Alice has the microphone on. Yeah. No, my, my question is more on the call to action. Um, I, I, lucky enough, I know Ellie, so I, I picked her up, uh, and when I went to pick her up on the... <laughs> And, and when I went to collect her, there was no. Uh, oh, her, 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 how are you doing? Her, her, her location didn't exist on Google Maps. And what we thought when we looked at it, it said, all of these chalets are here, all of these reception centers here, and, and they didn't exist. The, 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 the question is really, Ellie, what's the call to action for the people who are here when they leave here tonight? Because they know you're going home there tonight. Uh, this is what I'm saying that, you know, like, it's not easy to be Eric Siombe and to come from where I'm coming from. Like, now, Tony, you are here, so you are driving me home because I've been, like, thinking, like, huh? <laughs> so, you know, so this is what happens. 
So when I come in this audience, I try to act a little bit posh, you know, like forget, forget from where I'm coming from. And then as the time starts slipping off like this, I'm like, oh my Jesus. Please, God, save this hell out of me. So, you know, like, uh, uh, this is what I'm saying, that, you know, like, it's not even right the way we are being, like, put or housed. It takes me 10 minutes to walk to reach to, to get a bus to come uh, to city center, a place whereby, you know, you are in the middle of nowhere, and at least I'm close to city, but, like, other centers, if you can go to Mule Street where I live, you can walk from here up to maybe O'Connell Bridge, you know, and that's where you start seeing houses that, okay, there are a few houses over there. So um, that's why I'm saying you have to lobby your, uh, your TDs and ministers and I mean, people, they shouldn't be kept this way. Yeah, I mean, way. lobbying that's the politicians wrong. also, we were saying yeah. earlier on, like there's been two amazing referendums in this country and so much young energy yeah. and people really stepping up for what they believe in. And I think that can be harnessed. Like that energy that's come out over the last few years and... I think people now really found like that their one vote made such a massive difference. And I think if you use that vote against your politicians, if you go up to your politician and go, guys, we don't, this is not in our name, like we don't want this to happen, that will make change. You, they need your vote. You're their employers. Yeah. And can I, can I tell you something, lads? Like, let's get angry, you know? Like, it's good to get angry in a very good way. We are game changers, you know, like, we are game changers. So let's do it. And remember, let's do it. It's, your, your, it's your tax money that's being used to, for this system, this abuse of human rights, is the money that's coming out of your check without your consent. So use your consent and go, no, fuck off, no. And it's providing, provision. A, providing provision, but in the really, really basic way, like, like the food, the nutritional value of the food is minimal and that I mean you're talking about mental health issues like being fed fried food since you were a baby to adulthood for some people every single day three meals a day really really bottom line food with very very little nutrition very little um, reference to culture or any kind of needs that somebody has around a table just and what eat. type of stuff is like chips chicken nuggets lasagna yeah, it's kind of like junk foods like uh Chicken chips, I mean, when you're talking chips, you know, there's, I'm a chef, so there's few types of chips, right? Yeah. You see chips on a plate and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm getting chips. But, uh, you know, these are just junk chips that they've been there like for ages, you know, like frozen chips and frozen nuggets. This is food that, you know, it's, it's been processed. You're talking of processed food. It's high profit you know? margin on that food. Yeah. yeah so. Because of the fucking profit margin. Mm -hmm. It's a massive mm -hmm. profit margin. To buy mm -hmm. a, ma a big bag of frozen processed food and mm -hmm. to throw it into a fryer is way, way cheaper mm -hmm. to produce mm -hmm. than um, getting someone in to chop up fresh vegetables. Yeah. So and profit is definitely a factor in, in, in most cases, yeah. So, like, someone from being a kid up to an adult with no autonomy or choice about vegetables, about things like that, it's like, there's chicken nuggets. One thing that came up, I remember one of the first... Um, dinners we did in the project and actually just we were all sitting around chatting after and a lot of people who come from DP and choice actually was something that came up and it surprised me I hadn't really thought about it luckily I haven't had the experience of being kind of handed one meal to eat every day and everyone was like wow because we cooked so much stuff remember that yeah. day there was like a whole literally a whole table if you see photos of different completely different dishes and people from loads of people from direct provision came and just ate with us and joined in the meal and 
everyone afterwards is like, we could just choose what we wanted mm. for the first time yeah. in years. Mm. So you could come and fill your plate mm. with whatever you wanted that was on that table. And I, it didn't even resonate with me until after. I was like, oh my God, wow. And they were like, mostly we're just handed a plate of food. Yeah. Like for three meals a day, you're just handed this thing. And the lack of choice and autonomy, and then obviously that filtering down to your child, that you don't feel like you have you know, the ability to provide choice to them is also, I'd imagine, I mean, luckily, again, it's, it's, Ellie will tell you more, but, like, that's a really, really disempowering thing. It's and, really and unfair. The way, and the way, like, people get treated with that plate of meal and the way they can make you feel small, people just throw a plate and just go, you know, days without eating food because of the way they That's eat. what I want to know. Like, like mm-hmm. even the staff that work in, in the canteen there, or how are the staff towards the residents? And before I forget, can I tell you something? <laughs> there was a day, there was a day, you know, like uh, I, I've been like for five years, like having independent living and being cooked for my kids. And, and then I went there. So the first week that I got in there, I actually got ill. I, I literally got ill. So, you know, when you're ill, there's food that you, you don't want to eat. You, you, yeah. you need a nice soup, a nice mash, you know, yeah. better cooked. Right, I could give you the recipe. Better cooked mash, so you need that. So, um, and I, I wanted food, so I went in there and I was like, you know, guys, yesterday I came in here, I found junk chips. Today I found junk this. And then, what are you cooking tomorrow? You know, this chef went and get me a menu and said, you know what, I got this menu from Ria. Mm-hmm. So Ria is an institution that takes care of people that lives in that center. So you can imagine, you are a chef, because a chef, you wake up in the morning and you order the stuff that you want to cook. Mm -hmm. So you don't, as a chef, you don't even have that right to order the food that you want to cook. So you are waiting for somebody who is an IT person or administrator to give you the menu that you have to cook. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's just fucking, yeah. So the chef couldn't even, aren't using their creative freedom if they wanted to. Yeah. So that's how bad it is. That, 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 that's just... This is happening, lads. And it's not in the papers, it's not spoken about in the doll. Do you know what I mean? So we have to fucking well, use our agency. Everyone listening has the power to, to make yes. change. I mean, it's your... Let a TD know. You're not getting my vote. What are your opinions on direct provision? Most of them I probably don't have answers. Don't think about it. Because it's kept so far underneath the, the carpet. And what your buddy said up there, like, it's not even on Google Maps. What, what is the... What can people do for entertainment in direct provision? What are people's hobbies? Um, can they play games? Is, is there musical instruments? What, what, what do people do in direct provision for entertainment? Uh, I mean, for themselves, they can't do anything because they don't have the facilities. But if they can get help, like there's music, there's football, there's basketball, there's lots of stuff that can be done, you know, that can be clear. organizations going Organizations and do that. And we know, like, there are other organizations that are helping out. But, you know, like, we have not even in... in, uh, Last year, we were saying, for the past two years, we we were saying we have 5,000 asylum seekers, which I don't even think that we have 5,000. Now it's even more than that. So, you know, even the organizations that we have uh, now are the moment, they, as much as they are trying, uh, I don't think it's, it can be able for them to 
help everyone. But uh, if there are other people that they can volunteer and also other organizations that even can help out, you know, there is a lot of things that can be done, like platforms like our table, uh, you know, like setting up footballs and, you know, hurling and, and a lot of stuff. Yeah, in yeah. Limerick, there's a, I can't think of the name of it, but it's, it's a running organization. Yeah, mm. the uh, Sanctuary, Sanctuary Runners. Yeah. 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 There's Sanctuary a good Runners. few really, really good yeah. projects around the country, and it just does take mm. someone just to, to one or two people just to go in and yeah. just and do mm. it. Um, Sligo mm. Global Kitchen in mm. Sligo, um, they do some amazing work as well. They in the Model yeah. Arts Centre a few times mm. a year. They come and hundreds of people, and they pick two countries. So mm. they ask loads of people from Direct Provision just to choose two. Um, two countries so it might be Syria it might be Eritrea mm. and people cook loads of people come together and cook meals from those two countries and just serve it to hundreds of people and there's always loads of music there's all talk so it's a real information day mm. and a food day and there is those different things going on around the country and it is just people reaching in mm. and then other people reaching out and the two coming together and yep. there is so much energy mm. there to help and I found that was one thing we were talking about um, earlier on that there was so much I think when we did the first hour table, we were shocked at how many people walked in the door and said, we, we, this is the first time we've felt our ability to show solidarity. We didn't know where. We, we, we kind of were getting annoyed at this, and we didn't know where to voice that annoyance. So loads of people came through the door to us and offered help, offered loads of different things, and just saying, you know, we really, really want to do something, and we just don't have an outlet. So there is people like uh, we were talking about earlier on Massey, it's like a global kitchen, our table, all these different things. So people can just walk up, call them, just talk and say, listen, mm -hmm. I have a few hours on a Friday. I can teach a kid mm -hmm. English. I mm -hmm. can do some soccer training. Mm -hmm. I can do some GA training, whatever it is. And like, there's definitely places there you can go and help. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, thank you. Thank you very much to my <laughs> fantastic guests, Michelle and Ellie. <laughs> And, and lads, fair play to ye. If ye enjoyed tonight, if ye left here feeling inspired, feeling angry, understand ye have the autonomy and the power to do something about this. Okay? Whether it's volunteering, whether it's using your votes, whether it's pissing off your TDs, let's, let's become the change. And thank you for coming here tonight. God bless. Have a bit of crack. Thank you for listening to that. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I will be back next week. Uh, be compassionate to yourself. Be compassionate to your neighbours. Yurt. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.